As I took out loans for college, I had no idea how my family was covering the full cost. I mean, I knew there was some financial aid to help, but was also aware my parents and I were each taking on some significant financial obligations. And by obligation, I mean debt. The amount of money charged per year for my school was laughable. I mean, just a silly number that had absolutely no basis in reality. $45,000 every year? Yeah, right. We absolutely don't have that, but sure. My college experience was actually wonderful all in all, despite the high price tag. And like many private institutions, they boasted about their multi-billion dollar endowment. They also spent a ton of money on new dorms, new buildings, new everything. Again, the school was nice and I did get some financial aid, but it was hard knowing that my family and I would struggle to pay and go deeper and deeper into debt as the college just sat on their endowment, seemingly only opening it up for new buildings. I wasn't alone, not by a long shot. I owe $107,000 I have to pay till I'm 82 years old. I went to law school, so I have hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt. Working class families, they're the ones that take out student debt at a higher rate. They're the ones that are impacted higher. And for the folks that look at us and say, we're in this problem because we live beyond our means, it's not because we live beyond our means, it's because we've been denied the means to live. We all supported the Paycheck Protection Program, remember PPP? Several members of Congress got over a million dollars all those loans are forgiven. Now a kid making 60,000 bucks, asking for $10,000 in relief, come on. Welcome to episode three of Indebted, a podcast about debt and race in America. I'm your host, Maurice B.P. Weeks, a lifelong economic and racial justice organizer. Each episode, we tackle a different aspect of debt, exploring how it works and why it spells bad news for black people in our entire economy. In this episode, we're taking a look at the over trillion dollar elephant in the room, student loans. Let's get into how they work and the inescapable debt they trap us with. Student debt is the defining economic reality of a generation. Everyone I know has or until recently had student debt. And it's not just people who went to expensive colleges. It's graduates from all schools. It's people who didn't graduate. It's parents. It's people who attended trade schools. It's just, it's just so many people. 45 million plus Americans, in fact. So the chances are quite a few of you listening to this right now have or had student debt. Part of the frustration with student debt is that the value of your education after you leave school is certainly not on par with the negative impact of the debt that you have to deal with. It actually reminds me of a Seinfeld joke about the dinner check coming at the end of the meal when you're already full. Then the check comes at that moment. People are always upset, you know? They're mystified by the check. What is this? How could this be? start passing it around the table. Does this look right to you? Like basically everything else, if you break student debt stats down by race, it's a remarkably different picture for black borrowers than non-black borrowers. Black borrowers average about $23,400 in borrowing for an undergraduate degree, the most of any racial demographic, and $7,400 more than the average white borrower. Black borrowers are three times as likely to default on their loans. They're more likely to need income-based repayment. The list goes on and on. And the icing on the cake? The average black college grad is three times less wealthy than the average white high school dropout. So the system is clearly broken for black folks. A show about student debt is clearly a big one for this moment in time, so I thought a lot about how I wanted to approach this episode. When I think about student debt and black people, I really think, what a tragedy. Access to education is such a core piece of the fight for black human rights in this historically racist nation. It's just such a shame that the experience for black families is now one of debt and financial despair without the upside. Going through it all feels like going through the five stages of grief. If you're among the folks with student debt, you'll remember that first student loan bill you get isn't right after you leave school, but a few months later. 
you've had just enough time to celebrate or adjust to this new life and struggle to find work. And then, boom, a bill from Navient or PNC Bank or whoever for $300, $500, $800 and a promise of another one on the way next month. That probably triggers stage one, denial. This can't be real. They must have calculated the number wrong. I thought my parents took out these loans. I thought some of this was scholarship money. Sound familiar? Hey, it's an expected first stage for a 21-year-old staring at a bill they probably can't pay. That sets you up perfectly for the next stage. Anger. How can a school with this much money in their endowment have charged so much? Did they just send me a fundraising letter? Why am I paying this amount in interest? How is any of this legal? I know for sure that one sounds familiar. There's a lot to be angry about with student loans. I wanted to remind myself a little bit about that post-graduation feeling. Let's face it, it's been over a decade since I graduated from college, and it'd be helpful to have a more recent example. So I connected with a recent Howard University grad to hear about how she's doing. My name is Cheyenne McDonald. I'm a recent graduate of Howard University, and I just moved back to D.C. to start my new position. I'm a federal employee in the city. Can you just tell us a little bit about your family background? Like, not super detailed, but like, what was life like growing up financially? My dad is a veteran, and he's now a teacher at a public school. And my mom is an RN. She just graduated with her master's in nurse practitioning. So definitely grew up comfortable, but not not too comfortable. We were still, you know, we couldn't just go to Disney every summer. But yeah, I was, I was pretty lucky to have a pretty comfortable upbringing, I would say. Um, and how did you decide to go to Howard? I was raised pretty conservative. I grew up Catholic, so I went to Catholic school my whole life. And the demographics were not exactly what I wanted to be. So Howard was really the ideal place to be around people look like me, more black and brown people. So that was really my, the first reason I wanted to go to Howard, but also because I am interested in policy. So being in D.C., a poli-sci, political science major in D.C., it was the place to be. So Howard was, you know, the place where I could see myself really shining through as a black person and in a city where policy is made. Yeah, um, it's an extremely good school. So yes. congratulations again. How did you like it? Did you have a good time there? Culturally and academically, I had a great time, but Howard is a very expensive school. I would say I loved Howard generally, but I definitely have a few reservations about it as well. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That pretty much describes how I feel about my college too. I think that's pretty, <laughs> yeah. pretty normal. Yeah. It's really universal. All right. So let's let's talk about Howard and <laughs> uh, tuition and debt. So yeah. first off, like how conscious were you of the price of Howard when you were there? When I got my acceptance letter, it was just like a dream come true. But when it came to like paying that bill, I just saw the loan that Howard offered me and I was like, okay, this is how I'm going to pay for it. So I just accepted it. But at that time at 18, it didn't seem like a real thing. It seemed like free money at the time. But now as a 22 year old recent graduate who has to start paying it back in six months, I'm realizing that is real money. But again, at 18, I was like, I got into Howard. This is how I'm going to pay for it. And that was it. So if you could remember back to when you were after you got the acceptance letter to Howard and we're trying to figure out how you were going to pay for it. How did how were you thinking about the difference between loans and scholarships and How did you conceptualize like either of those things working? Was it really clear to you? A short answer is no. All I saw was subsidized, unsubsidized loans. And I saw the scholarships and grants. It was all on the same sheet. There's a lot more paperwork for the loans. But at 18, I was just, you know, doing the paperwork, putting my signature down, putting my social security down. I was just going through the motions Um, but I will say it was not very clear at all. Everything was just listed down. They said, we'll offer you this much in loans, we'll offer you this much in scholarships, we'll offer you this much in grants, and you just accept it. So it was not very clear at all, And now that I think about it, and it's very deceptive. It seems very predatory when I really think about it, and how the way you asked the question, I wish somebody asked me that at 18. Like, what is the difference between what I'm looking at 
versus loans and scholarships, but it was not, it was not very clear to me at all. I just accepted it and that was it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you even feel like there was a choice to accept it or not? You're just like, you got into the school and this is the way to go to school. You have to sign these forms. Howard gave me the exact amount for cost of attendance and with scholarships, I was just grateful to have free money. And I also saw the loans as free money, but all the numbers exactly all added up to the exact cost of attendance. So I never thought of negotiating that, which is another thing I wish my 18 year old self would knew, but I just didn't question it because I knew my, my balance would be gone once I accepted it. With this new job, do you feel like you're in a comfortable position to start your payments when they start? Yeah, that was one of the main reasons I chose this job, if I'm being honest, is their student loan repayment program. As a government employee, or at least in my office, they have a student loan repayment program where they offer, I believe, up to 600 a month to repay loans. So that was a very enticing reason to take this position. So I would say yes, because I know that they will help me repay it. That's an amazing, amazing program. (laughs) Yeah, Um, it really is. Do you know how much your payments are going to be come January? I'm not sure, but I, I believe it's going to be starting 250 for the next couple years. Yeah. Three yeah. or four years. Did your family help at all with loans or with paying directly? Do you know? My dad took out a Parent PLUS loan for me for the final semester, and I'm extremely grateful for that. Um, it ended up being that my mom got a, got a Parent PLUS for my sister, and my dad got a Parent PLUS for me which I know is, it is a luxury, but it's a huge burden on my parents as well. Um, but yeah, I did end up having to ask my parents for assistance to yeah. pay for school. So, I mean, as you know, there was there's a lot of conversation recently about cancellation of student debt, and we got really close to canceling about $10,000 of debt for folks that didn't happen. I'm wondering what that experience was like for you as someone with with recent debt, seeing that play out. It kind of felt like a tease because um, I thought I'd be coming out of Howard with, you know, $10,000 less in debt, but it didn't happen. At Howard, most people have student loans. A lot of us have way more than 10K. So seeing that opportunity taken away from us, given because knowing how much that we had to take out to pay for Howard and even just 10K would have been a gift but it seems like such a it seems like such a small amount to me given my loans. But seeing how they couldn't even cancel that much for everybody is very disheartening, and it discourages me to imagine how student loans is going to play out in general, like the whole forgiveness. So, if I was to play devil's advocate and be like, you know, uh, old crotchety conservative, which I'm I'm not any any of those things. Maybe I'm a little bit crotchety, but definitely not older conservative. Um, and say like, well, you know, you were 18 when you signed these documents and Howard publicizes their tuition. Um, why should we cancel any of your loans? Why should we cancel loans of people who sign these documents? What, what, what would you say as someone who's staring down repayment starting in January? I think someone that would say that probably doesn't understand how inaccessible higher education is, especially as an African-American. Um, so... Howard is the mecca for black opportunity, black academia, but it's also extremely expensive, but it's also a place for opportunity for black people. So for people like me and a lot of my classmates, we were going to figure out some way to get to Howard if it was a loan or if we had to do four jobs. So I think I wish they would be more sympathetic to understand that a lot of black people go to college for economic movement and a lot of people like me see loans as an investment. So I think then letting go of 10K or even just all loans, it just shows that our investment is paying off and it's not something that we have to burden ourselves with for the rest of our life. Do you think you'll stay in this job until they're finished paying off all your loans? That's a great question. I was really thinking that. I do want to go back and get my master's though. So it's a really, really tough question. That's more debt, more debt. I know. I know, but that's another problem. I love school. I love going to school, but school it costs so much money, and it's it's ridiculous. But I, it's yeah. Um, I do think I will stay until they're paid off, which will take a few years. Which 
isn't part of my five-year plan, what quote unquote, but it's such a, it's such a privilege to have a kind of program with a job like this at such an early age that I feel like I should take advantage of it. So yeah, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna stay here a few years. I hear you. I hear you. Yeah. As someone with a with a master's, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I know that feeling really, really well of being like, I really want to study this, but it's just so, so expensive. It um, is. It's terrible. Yeah. Well, um, I really appreciate you chatting with me and yeah. just like the absolute best of luck. I know you're going to rock Thank it you. on the hill. Um, and and yeah, let's hope we can get some of your, your loans taken care of as well. That would be great in the future a dream come true (laughs) yes all right cheyenne thanks again thank you maurice i really wish the best of luck to cheyenne she has a bright future that i hope includes getting rid of her loan somehow hi this is caden the publisher of convergence magazine there are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements but if you're enjoying this show i hope you'll consider subscribing to convergence on patreon We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergencemag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system, one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. So we're moving on to our final three stages of grief. Up next, bargaining. Maybe there's a program I can sign up for. Wait, that only reduces my payment by 50 bucks. Oh, this other program will cancel my loans if I work in a nonprofit or a school. But I have to do that for 10 years. Maybe I can call the servicer and ask for a delay in paying them back. Maybe I can figure out some side hustle to be able to meet all these bills. I remember this wheeling and dealing very vividly. Every harebrained scheme imaginable. And exactly zero of them worked. But hey, stage three is in human nature. Unfortunately, so is stage four, depression. No matter what I do, I'm gonna be stuck with these loans. I can't believe I'm gonna be paying these until 2034. It's gonna take me five years to get a job that even comes close to giving me enough money to pay for all this. Everyone around me is in the same position. We're all screwed. All right, you're now ready for the final stage. Acceptance. I would say until recently, most of my generation was in the acceptance phase. Student loans would often come up in conversations and friends would just quip, oh, they're never getting that money back. Some people figured out a way to make the payments work by delaying buying a house or not having a kid or working in a field that they hated. But others just said, Screw it. Who cares? Let them try and get their money any way that they can. I'm not paying. But recently, some federal action has shaken things up a bit and jumbled all these phases. It made everything a little bit more uncertain. To talk about these last three stages of grief and where we go from here, and especially what this means for Black borrowers, I spoke to an expert on student borrowing and debt. Hello, I'm Persis Yu. I am the Deputy Executive Director and Managing Counsel at the Student Borrower Protection Center. Well, welcome, Persis. I'm I'm wondering if we can start off by uh, just you telling folks what the Student Borrower Protection Center does. Sure, we are um, the Student Borrower Protection Center is a nonprofit organization. We're a national advocacy organization focused on alleviating the burdens of student debt for millions of Americans across the country. We do this by engaging in advocacy, policymaking, litigation, um, and our goal is to rein in both industry abuses, protect borrower rights, and also to advance economic opportunity for the next generation of students. Yeah. One of my favorite organizations, because of the publications you all put out, which are just so thorough and perfect and cut through a lot of the noise on this issue, so really excited to, to chat with you about it. So in general, I think that people know some some basic stuff about student loans. That's probably because like 50 million of us yeah. have student loans. or So that means that basically everyone has one or knows a family member that has one. It does seem like a problem that has gotten worse in the last 20 years or so. And, and that could just be my feeling of it. But, but 
A, is that true? And B, if so, can you describe kind of how and why that happened? Yeah, no, I mean, it's not in your head. Um, That's real. (laughs) Um, You know, the student debt crisis has been growing really what feels like exponentially over the last couple decades. I started doing this work before student debt hit the one trillion mark. And I remember, I remember when that happened, right? There, there's an anniversary date, it's in the spring, of student loans hitting the one trillion mark. And I remember at that time, people going, oh, this isn't really a problem. This was, you know, in the, in the late, late aughts, early 20 teens. And folks saying like, oh, this, this is, you know, it's not really a big deal. Student debt is good debt, right? Student debt is this investment in yourself and your own future potential. And I think what we've seen over the last couple decades is a couple key factors happening all at once. So the first one being just the rise in the cost of education. The cost of college is going up and it's been going up at an alarming rate. And this is, you know, there's lots of reasons for why this is happening. Um, I think the largest contributors are states are investing less in their public education system. The value of the Pell Grant is going down. You know, you see colleges with very, you know, top heavy administration. So you have the cost of college going up. Um, At the same time, we of course have wage stagnation and we have a student loan system that's not actually functioning. And I think that has become very apparent as more and more people are relying on debt in order to pay for that very expensive education. So both you have the rising cost of college and then a system that is not really functioning in order to get people through that system. And then, of course, you know, we have the economy at large, right? People can't pay their loans if they're not making enough money. Yeah, it feels like the, there's the other side of the economy at large is that, you know, that, that last 20 years corresponds too with a, a, a massive increase in corporate power and yeah. corporate influence. Um, I, th- I think of financialization as being a part of that. And I'm, I, yeah, I wonder how that plays into everything as well. Oh, 100%. I mean, I think, you know, student debt is a key component about how we talk about the economy at large. And I think, I do think that that financialization, another component um, when we're talking about the rising cost of education and people being indebted is, of course, the for-profit school industry. And the schools that kind of looked at our federal student loan program and saw dollar signs, right? They said, oh, all I have to do is get somebody signed up and I get the money. And I don't actually have to care really about what happens to them on the back end. And so we saw a lot of for-profit schools sign up a lot of really, frankly, poor black and brown kids um, to go to get an education with these big promises of these very lucrative, shiny jobs that really just didn't pan out. And what right. happened is, you know, these executives took the money and ran and student loan borrowers are left holding the bag here. So, I've, you know, I've seen tons of information from groups uh, like Student Borrower Protection Center and also Demos and Roosevelt Institute talking about student debt perpetuating racial inequality, racial and economic inequality. Can you speak to that a bit? Like, what, it, what does that actually look like? Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's such an important topic, and, and those groups have done such tremendous and important work in this space, highlighting how how debt has been really harming communities of color. I mean, I think, you know, on the very basic level, students of color typically have less familial wealth, right? And And so in some sense, you know, some sense this is just, it's logical, right? If you have less familial wealth, then you're going to have less resources to go to school, which means that you're going to have to take on debt in order to, to kind of make up whatever gap or pay for the entire thing in many cases, just from the start. You know, you have less resources going in and, you know, and the data supports all, right? It's both like logical right. and like what we would expect to have happen with our understanding of the world, but also right. is supported with data, right? That we know that students of color have to take on more debt with a greater frequency. Um, and when they borrow, they have to borrow more money. So that's just the process of like getting the debt. And then as we've talked about, right, like this is a story about the economy at large, right? And so they graduate or they don't graduate in many, in many cases, because, you know, roughly 40% of our student loan population actually does not have the degree, right? So 
let's set those side go, those those folks aside for just a second because they have their own very important narrative to talk about. But we do have again these folks. They're graduating from school, right? And then we ha- and then you, you enter into a job economy where you're then again facing wage discrimination, and so you have the racial wage gap contributing. So you've already had to take on more debt. Now you're in a job market where you're going to take, where you're going to make less money to pay that. Right. And of course, now we got to enter, you know, factor gender into the equation as well. So, you know, black women in particular are hit hard by this dynamic because women in general take on more debt. People of color take on more debt. And then women of color especially are hit hard by this problem. And then you have this economy that's not going to pay, is not going to pay you a fair wage. And so a lot of folks wind up having to take on graduate degrees. So again, we're talking about even more debt and recognizing that, you know, a black woman with a master's degree still makes less than a white man with just a bachelor's degree, right? So you have all this extra debt without the wages to really pay for that debt. And it just is a cascading problem. And, and, and I think where we really, where it really gets us, and I think a lot of folks miss kind of how bad it really gets, is when we talk about the next generation, right? Mm -hmm. So what Mm -hmm. is debt doing, right? So you have this debt and the statistics are are pretty terrible in terms of repayment um, outcomes. You know, there was was one study that found that 20 years after taking on debt, the typical black borrower still owes 95% of their original balance. Whereas 20 years out, the typical white borrower has paid off 95% of their debt. Right. And so like that is in very real terms, like what this debt looks like two decades after going to school. And you think about folks in their lifespan. What are folks doing in those 20 years? Right. Of course, they're working. But, you know, people are trying to start families. They're trying to start businesses. They're trying to buy homes. If they have children, they're hoping uh, i mean in many cases they're not but you know i think many po- people feel like they should be saving for their child's education right so you can see how this cycle self perpetuates itself where you know the fact that you don't have resources means you have to go you know you have to go into debt and then that debt stays with you for so long and then we have i think what winds up being one of the most tragic consequences we have folks with their own debt still taking on parent plus loans so that their yeah. kids can go to school, right? And it's just this never-ending cycle. And it, and it really does create this, you know, this debt trap where folks are just kind of skimming the surface to try to stay afloat here. I'm curious, this might be a, an unfair question or maybe an unanswerable question, but I mean, that that that's, it, that's just so unbelievably stark, like the difference between sort of a white graduate's experience or white college students experience or their family's experience and one of a person of color or a black person why is that not sort of more at the forefront of 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 the story do you think i mean is it yeah i'm i'm, I'm curious why why this is not just primarily a story about right. economic racial inequality yeah, no, I mean, I think I, 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 you're right. I do not have the answer for that. I would love to, I would like to solve, solve this problem, right? Maybe we're both just trying to answer that, you know, right. in our life's work, really. But yes, right. this yeah. is why we're here, right? right. Because I think it's right. a really important story that people are not listening to. Um, but, it, you know, I do think it's an important narrative. And it is, you know, it really goes to the heart of this narrative. During the campaign for student debt cancellation, I think one of the things that we've tried to fight back on so much is this idea that student debt is this, you know, rich, elite, white kid problem, right? You know, rich kids don't take on debt to go to school, right? Right. Let's, you know, like, let's just be honest here. Um, Right? Like Harvard, for example, who is, you know, everyone's saying, oh, I don't want to pay for, you know, folks to go to Harvard. Only three percent of their students take on, you know, have federal loans to go to to go to Harvard, right? And those three percent are very low income, right? That's right. So yeah. you know, I think there is definitely this public perception about who holds student loan debt that is, you know, completely out of balance of reality. And I mean, I think you know, obviously, it goes speaks to a much bigger picture about how we're we're talking about things. Um, in society. But I do think like one of the arguments that, you know, a lot of opponents of student debt cancellation raised during that campaign was this notion that student debt cancellation would be regressive, right? That somehow it would help those people who are better off, um, which 
I think on just a factual level is is inaccurate, right? We know that the biggest beneficiaries of student debt cancellation are folks who are low income, middle income, you know, folks of color, people in default on their loans, the 40% of folks who didn't complete their degrees. Um, and these folks who they're, edu- you know, they took on this debt and got absolutely no, you know, increase in their earning potential. But so, I mean, I think factually that statement was wrong, but just looking at it, I mean, I found it ironic that, you know, some of these opponents who I have not really thought of as the progressive types, sure. you know, arguing for progressive ideals, you know, but the, the irony is that student loans themselves are regressive, right? That's right. They are regressive because if you have less resources, you have to take on more debt. The more debt you take on, the more expensive it is. The more you have to take on, you know, the less you earn, the longer it's going to take you to repay, the more you're going to repay in interest. It is definitionally regressive. And I think this is a conversation that really just isn't happening enough that I think folks who don't want to deal with student loans don't want to deal with this reality. Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm wondering if we could we could sort of play a hypothetical here. And, you know, let's say there's someone who has graduated from college or maybe didn't graduate at all and is, you know, five years out and they're struggling to pay their loans back. They had to take out a significant amount of loans. What what is what are the current options look like for them to, you know, be able to mitigate or reduce the amount at this moment to kind of be able to get by? Right. So we've we've heard a lot about this in the very recent past about income during payment. It's actually a thing that has been around since 1994 and has been really gone under the radar. And I think purposefully by a lot of servicers because it's, you know, not the easiest thing for them to administer. But there are programs that are available to, I don't want to say the word insure. I think that's a little too strong, but Mm -hmm. it it attempts to make loans, you know, your loan payments more affordable. And the way that they're supposed to work is, you know, they take your income and then you pay a percentage of your income. And then after a certain amount of time, those loans will be canceled. Uh, If you're in public service, ideally that happens in 10 years. If you're not, it's 20 or 25 years, depending on whether or not you have graduate debt or parent plus loans. So there are some options to try to, you know, mitigate the, the harsh effects of, of this cancellation. I hedged on calling it, you know, ensuring affordability, because I think the reality is, is for a lot of folks, it's still not affordable. And, you know, it's still taking away money that folks need to, you know, pay their childcare, to pay their rent, that they'd love to save for a down payment, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, this is the system we have there, you know, President Biden is promising to make it more affordable. You know, I think a lot of folks have been a lot been really skeptical about whether or not these programs work and for very good reasons because they haven't. And that's, you know, I think that's one of the realities is we've had this system, like I said in the beginning of it's not working. It's not getting people past the place. And income during payment has been one of those kind of pain points where there is a program in theory that if you can jump through all the right hoops, you can get into it. But they do exist. And if you can jump through the hoops, they are there and they can be very helpful. Yeah. 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 I remember sort of in year I've worked at nonprofits basically my whole work career. And I remember in year six or so realizing that I should have been, you know, signing up for uh, public service loan forgiveness. And yeah, we had a a little window of time recently where where I was able to sort of go back and do it retroactively. But but I I do want to talk about this kind of sliver of hope that we were given recently. And, you know, I I started tracking this as a sliver of hope from the beginning of the 2020 Democratic primary season, where there were several leading candidates calling for massive student loan forgiveness. Some calling for 50,000, some calling for 100%. Fast forward to 2023 in the summer where the Supreme Court struck down President Biden's student forgiveness plan entirely. I'm imagining, of course, that you, like me, think that the Supreme Court got that ruling wrong um, and hope that, you know, the administration can figure out other ways to get some cancellation happening. But how did we get from, you know, candidates asking for 100% cancellation to 50,000 to 10,000 to zero and why? Oh, that is is a great question. You know, I think it's helpful 
to step back and, and look at this trajectory. And I think there are a couple different goals and that some folks have had in mind as they've picked different numbers. You know, I don't know that I've ever had the magic number. Like, what is the right number? I think more is more, right? Like, the more cancellation you give, the better it will be for folks. Um, but thinking about, like, where we have the different spreads, you know, I think the total cancellation idea really comes from this notion that student debt is illegitimate, right? That, and I think a lot of folks really do believe that student debt is illegitimate, that a higher education is is necessary in this moment, and it should be free. You know, to put people in debt to get a higher education is just Ill- illegitimate. And so then the only answer, once you get to that point, the only answer is to cancel it all, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think when we talk about the folks who've asked for, you know, 50, and I think the the, the 50, the original folks who were asking for 50, I think, have moved kind of towards 70. But that's there's research out there that that shows that that's kind of the point at which we undo a lot of the r- racial disparities in the system, that like that's the amount that's going to be necessary to really make a meaningful difference in the racial wealth gap is, you know, as we've articulated before, right, that we know that borrowers of color, in particular black borrowers, have to borrow more and have to pay more over the life of their loan. And so this is the amount that would be necessary across the portfolio, right? I mean, and we're, of course, talking in in averages, right? There's not, I guarantee you that as long as it's not 100%, you're going to have a person who you say, I think this person should really get it, but they're going to have above that amount, right? And, mm-hmm. and vice versa, mm-hmm. that you're going to have somebody below. But in terms of like across the portfolio, where you're going to like, what is going to be the maximum benefit of addressing this particular problem, right? Because now we're talking about a different problem. Um, right. We're addressing the, the problem of racial disparities. And so that's how we got to the $50,000 number. You know, I mean, I, how did how did we land on 10 from 50? I think, yeah. you know, I mean, and I think this is where, you know, we just get in, we get into politics, too. That's right. Um, That's right. Is that, you know, I mean, a lot of these folks started at zero. So 10 slash 20 is a lot higher than, than zero, um, you know, and, and I think, you know, I'm sure the administration had, you know, it's, it's economic analysis that ran, you know, to come up with 10 and 20. I think, you know, I mean, I do think that the additional 10 for the Pell Grant was actually a really meaningful boost. And I think a lot of folks were really worried that it was going to land. We, of course, have different worries now, but a lot of folks before the announcement were were worried it was going to land at just 10,000. And I think that the the boost of the 20,000 or to 20,000 for folks who had received a Pell Grant was a pretty meaningful difference. You know, I think, you know, looking at 20 million people being debt-free is, you know, not an insignificant number of people, but, but of course it doesn't address the other problems that, that have been articulated and still leave a lot of folks with a lot of unaffordable debt. Yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, now we're at, at, at least for the time being at zero, um, after the Supreme court ruling. So I'm, I'm wondering like, what does this mean now for, you know, the 50 million folks with the, two plus trillion dollars worth of debt. Like what's, what's, where do we go from here? Yeah. I mean, I think I I will say like, it's a really precarious time for borrowers. Um, And I I think we have to name the moment of the precarity here. You know, I think we can quibble about that, what the number should have been. um, But I think the department of education had some really solid analysis about the harms of returning to repayment without cancellation. And, you know, recognizing that, you know, bills are scheduled to be sent out in about a month um, for the first time in about three and a half years. And, you know, the, the administration had promised this cushion, right, that this cancellation was designed in order to kind of, you know, soften the blow of what it's going to be to turn this, these payments back on, right? I don't know a lot of folks who can look at, who look at their budgets and say, yeah, sure, I have an extra $200, $300 to, to spend on my student loans this month, right? And so I think, I think it is going, it is a pretty rough moment, you know, and the administration is trying other things, right? We, we've seen, we do have this um, income driven account, account adjustment, which was designed to really remedy the problems 
of income during payment and remedy the problems of folks getting steered into very expensive forbearances and that neither, you know, reduce their loan balances nor count towards cancellation. And so the administration said, like, look, we know that this bad practice has been going on. And so we're going to recount this time and give you credit for time and repayment, um, even if it wasn't the perfect repayment plan. Right. Because one of the things, one of the problems with the with the student loan system is it just it requires perfection to a level that like almost no human being can actually achieve um, to make your way through it. And um, and so kind of in recognition of that, they had this IDR account adjustment, of course, we're hoping to see the first wave of borrowers actually get full cancellation um, from that program imminently. Of course, the you know, that has now been challenged in court, too. We'll see what happens sure. there. And what I also think is a frivolous lawsuit, but we've seen where frivolous lawsuits have landed right. us beforehand. And so it is it is a situation of like incredible precarity right now um, for borrowers because they're staring down these bills that Congress, you know, and the president have mandated through the debt ceiling negotiations. And um, every attempt, you know, to try to give them relief has been stymied. Yeah, yeah. You know, this brings me to another perception note where, um, you know, I feel like when people think of this issue and th even think of repayments restarting, you immediately think of sort of a 21 or 22 year old, but they're, I mean, we briefly touched on it, but this, it's just so much more complicated than that. And the population of who holds these loans is so much more complicated than that, wouldn't you say? Oh, for sure. I mean, I, I think that is right. You know, I, I, I inadvertently said the word kids earlier, um, and I, I immediately regretted it. And this is one of my biggest gripes about how people talk about the student loan system is, you know, these kids or it's it's this millennial issue um, mm -hmm. or I guess now a Gen Z issue. It just isn't true that older borrowers is the fastest growing population of borrowers. You know, more than 20 percent of the portfolio is over the age of 50. And a lot of those folks do have, they have debt for themselves from their own education and they have debt for their kids. And it, it is most certainly impacting folks' ability to retire. One of the one of the dire consequences that I think very few people realize when they take on student loan debt is that, for one, it's one of the few things in our world without a statute of limitations. Meaning, you know, like at some point on your credit cards, if you're, you know, you're you default on your credit cards, at some point, the credit card company can't go after you anymore, right? You know, but not student loans. You know, it's not student loans. Uh, they will follow you till you die. And they will take your social security payments, too. Um, and so it it's is outrageous. It is so outrageous. And it is it causes a lot of older Americans a lot of financial distress. The CFPB, um, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, had this really eye opening report back in 2017 on older bar student loan borrowers and the number of borrowers who said they were skipping medications or skipping meals um, in order to pay their student loans is just it's just so depressing and devastating like this is this is not how we should be funding education yeah i mean i even think of my you know my my parents took out a significant amount of loans to send me and my siblings to uh you know thankfully really really good schools and they're both of retirement age right now, and it's a huge thing that they have to factor into their decisions, like how much right. Social Security is going to be, what percent of those loans are paid off, et cetera, et cetera. So it really is, it just feels incredibly unfair to so many different generations of, of folks. Yeah, and we have a real problem with Parent PLUS loans. Um, you know, I think, I think folks don't recognize that this is an area with with a, a real racial disparity problem because communities of color disproportionately, low income communities of color disproportionately hold parent plus loans. It's kind of like a very interesting um, population curve. It, it looks differently than us. You know, there's kind of like two, two poles of it is mm -hmm. that it is either held by, you know, low income folks of color or by wealthy white folks, but not a lot of people in the middle there. Um, uh. But I think one of, you know, one of the problems with it is a, a family without much or any income can take up to the cost of attendance of the school. And I'm a parent, like, if I don't have the resources to pay for my kid, right, like, that's what I do. 100%. And, and unfortunately, you know, policymakers along the way have made them incredibly difficult to pay off, right? So I talk about these 
you know, income during payment plans. Parent plus borrowers are excluded from these. If they jump through some hoops, they can get into the least generous of them. But it's still pretty unaffordable for a lot of folks. And they follow folks, again, just like all the other loans, they follow folks for their entire lives. And, you know, we hear from a lot of Parent PLUS borrowers who are really struggling just to kind of survive and stay on top of these loans. And, and, you know, many, frankly, don't. All right, Persis, what do we do? Where does this fight go from here? Like, what do, I mean, I, I know a bunch of people listening to this, or even before listening to this, have thrown up their hands and said, well... I guess they're never going to get that money so because uh, I'm just going to stop paying. Like, should we should we stop paying? Should we be fighting for a different course of action? What 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 should we do on the advocacy side? Yeah. So, I mean, I think so on, the, you know, the individual borrower side, like I'm never I'm never going to tell per- somebody that they should pay or they shouldn't pay. I think it's about education here. Like, let me just tell you, there there are consequences if you don't pay. Right. And the consequences of student loans non-payment are unfortunately like worse than most like going into default it's very hard to get out of it you lose access to some of the programs that do exist the government will often just take their money anyway through either you know taking wages taking tax refunds like i said taking your social security benefits so you know there are there are real consequences that folks should be aware of you know at the same time you know the system is incredibly broken and we don't yet see a pathway where it's going to be not broken anytime soon. Um, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and you know, and I, I think one of the things in terms of an advocacy front, though, is that we have to just keep pushing. You know, yeah. I think I think throwing up our hands from an advocacy perspective is absolutely the wrong thing to do. Yes, a lawsuit was filed. That doesn't mean that they've won. Right. You know, people right. file lawsuits. We have to keep pushing forward. You know, I think there are real problems that we need to keep elevating um, and we need to keep talking about and keep trying to figure out a solution for, you know, the administration said that they're going to do, you know, a rulemaking to come up with another way to provide relief. Well, let's let's hold them to that. Right. Um, and push them to make that as generous and and, you know, as possible and make it happen as fast as possible. And I think, you know, I think that as a community, we have to be responsible for holding um, folks to that. One of the things that we do um, at the Student Borrower Protection Center is we've been polling. We've been, you know, getting folks' attitudes about student debt. And, and this makes me kind of hopeful because if you look at the data and you look at the polling, you know, yes, this is a very politically polarizing issue, but actually people support student loan relief. They, they are supportive of President Biden's plan. You know, um, they were supportive of President Biden taking some action using other legal authority in light of the mm-hmm. Supreme Court decision. It is, of course, popular amongst younger people and folks with student loans. But in fact, it is not just popular amongst those folks. It is popular mm-hmm. amongst folks who have paid off their loans. Um, this is, you know, a common narrative that we hear all the time. Why sure. is this fair to the people who already, you know, paid off their loans? And it's like, that wasn't fair that they had to, you know, that they had to suffer through that system. But I aspire to live in a world that is better for my children than the one that I had to suffer through. And I think that, like, in general, you have the political messages and then you have what people really think, what real people on the ground really think. And people, you know, are supportive of student loan relief. People understand that this is a real problem. And that's, again, not even just Democrats. So it is also popular amongst independents. Um, It is popular amongst young Republicans, in fact. So, you know, I think if we look at how our country feels about student loan relief, I think that there is reason for hope. You know, it is not the same messages that we hear, the same polarizing political messages that, in fact, folks do support it. And I think if folks continue to push for it, that, you know, that's the only way we get it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I appreciate you bringing the hope back around. I mean, that definitely makes me more hopeful that, um, you know, we might not have it right now, but we certainly have um, an appetite for it in the country. And, and um, uh, yeah, I... I, I this can be a really uh, depressing and grief-inducing issue, so I'm I'm very thankful for bringing the hope back around. Um, well, I feel I feel all of that. So yeah, very yeah, deeply. totally, 
totally. It's all all mixed in for sure. Right. Well, Persis, you, um, I thank you so much for chatting with us uh, for this podcast, and yeah, just giving us the the rundown on on student debt. You're really such an expert on this. So it was an absolute pleasure to have you on. So great to talk to you. Thank you. Look, the situation is obviously not ideal. By the time you're hearing this, payments will have recently restarted for borrowers after a three-year pause because of the COVID-19 pandemic, with no forgiveness and definitely no cancellation. Democrats held the line and blocked some things Republicans wanted, like paying back interest, but all in all, it's not what we asked for or what we need. But I want to take a moment and offer some hope. You know, change in America is not linear. Our journey does bend towards justice, but it's not an arc. It's more like a thousand-piece jigsaw puzzle. We spend a lot of time in the same place. We have some periods of huge progress. Then the cat comes and wrecks the whole thing. So we have to start putting it together again. But at least this time, we remember where some stuff goes. From the time I stepped foot on a college campus until more than a decade after, I didn't expect a conversation about student debt cancellation let alone one that was among the leading presidential candidates and then the president. In the end, our pieces got knocked off of the board, and it sucks. But I feel so strongly that this is the time to push forward. This setback, plus a recent setback in affirmative action, are devastating for Black people in a way that we shouldn't be comfortable with. But we absolutely will win. There's thousands of Black children who are right now cultivating a love for learning and exploration, and we have to fight to make sure that they can achieve that. This issue is not just about economic justice, which it is, it's about racial justice. My thanks again to Cheyenne McDonald and Persis Yu for joining me this episode. Indebted is produced and published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. You can help support the show and others like it by becoming a Patreon member of Convergence for as low as $2 per month at patreon.com slash convergencemag. You can find a direct link in the show notes. The show is produced by Josh Elstro. It's written and hosted by me, Maurice B.P. Weeks. Until next time, let's keep fighting for the world we all deserve.